Thank you for joining the Georgia Chamber podcast. For 105 years, we have been the leading voice of business in the state of Georgia. Through these podcasts, we want to help you better understand the issues facing our state and how your business can grow and prosper. Thanks for joining us. To learn more, go to www.gachamber.com. Well, good afternoon. I'm Chris Clark, president of the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. I want to welcome you to another one of our recovery and resiliency roundtables. We hold these about every week uh, to really learn what's happening in our state from different industry sectors um, and to get best practices. I think that businesses all over our state can appreciate. Uh, today is a very interesting discussion. We've we've talked with small businesses about reopening and what their world looks like. We've talked to government leaders. We had Governor Kemp on earlier this week. Um, we've seen our schools. We've talked to the superintendent about K through 12 reopening. And today we're going to talk about what our university life is going to look like here in the state of Georgia. You know, so much of what happens in our communities is based around our institutes of higher education. They are not only preparing the next generation of students. Uh, but they're also incredible economic engines, particularly for some of our rural communities. And so we've got a great discussion today. Uh, before we get into that, I do want to remind you uh, that our congressional luncheon is next Tuesday. Uh, unfortunately, it will be virtual like everything else in our lives, uh, but we are hosting senior U.S. Senator David Perdue. We'll have a conversation with Congressman Sanford Bishop, Drew Ferguson. Uh, we'll have a special tribute uh, to John Lewis, and then we have a special guest joining us as well. Those virtual tickets are available today at gachamber.com, and I hope that you'll go and register for that. Uh, I also want to encourage you to go to uh, gachamber.com COVID-19. We've got the latest updates from not only Governor Kemp's executive order, but also the bill that Governor Kemp signed yesterday to provide liability protection uh, of businesses and institutions that are reopening uh, from COVID, uh, frivolous COVID lawsuits. And so uh, there's some basic information you need to understand about that. It's available on our website today. So. With that, let me tell you who we've got and what the run of show is going to look like today. We've got a great discussion with three of our university presidents, Dr. Paul Jones, president at Fort Valley State, Dr. Kyle Marrero, president of Georgia Southern, Dr. Pamela Witten, president at Kennesaw State. Uh, after they wrap up and we ask them some questions and learn what's happening on the ground, we're going to be joined by Cole Clark and Scott Friedman. They're with Deloitte Consulting and they're responsible for their global higher education programs and, and uh, consultancies. As you guys know, Deloitte uh, is a key partner with the Georgia Chamber with our recovery efforts. They're helping us sort through all the data and information that we're hearing about um, impacts to the Georgia economy and how we can restart our economy and move out of this recession quickly. So we're excited to have them. So a full package today, but we really have a special treat to get us started today is the new chairman of the Board of Regents, Session Shalendron. Uh, we're so excited, uh, Session, for you to take a few minutes with us and. Uh, we just appreciate the hard work that you guys have done at the Board of Regents. I know managing the university system with the budget impacts that you've got, with the impacts to our students and the economic situation we're in. I know it's been very stressful and you guys have been just incredible leaders and we appreciate it and look forward to hearing from you this afternoon. Well, thank you, Chris. We're, we're excited to be here today and we've got three of our great presidents on this call, Dr. Jones, Dr. Marrero, Dr. Witten, um, we've obviously had a challenging year with COVID and um, the budget reductions that we faced, but we've had a strong and resilient staff system. We have a great board and we're excited to go back 
the school. We've been thinking about this since March, since we left school. And we had a task force put together, led by Jerry Moorhead, to put together to look at our go to go back to school plans. In the next two to three weeks, we'll have all of our schools back in session. And um, obviously, it will be different than a normal fall semester. But um, different doesn't necessarily mean bad. It just means different. So we're all going to have to get used to the new normal and, and figure this out together. But um, I think the key to all of us is getting students back in the classroom and I think the majority of students want to be in the classroom. So I look forward to hearing from our presidents and I appreciate the time today to say a few words. So thank you, Chris. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I know we're also joined today by uh, Regent Holmes and Regent Pruitt are on there too. And I, you know, your board looks a little bit like my board and my past chairman and incoming chairs too. So we appreciate all the Board of Regents uh, and their support of the chamber and being with us today as well. So let's, uh, let's jump into this discussion. I tell you, we're all, um, I know my, my sister's sending her kid off back to Georgia Southern pretty soon here. Uh, but let's start. Uh, Dr. Jones, tell us about Fort Valley State, what the world is going to look like for you guys when you reopen and, and how are you going to take care of, of all of those students? Well, thank you, Chris, and, and thank you for uh, allowing me to participate in uh, this vital discussion about uh, the reopening strategies for higher education. Uh, like other industries, um, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has had an enormous impact on, on higher education. Um, you know, being part of a university system has allowed, I think, all of the 26 institutions uh, the opportunity to collaborate and to share best practices as we strategize to reopen our, our campuses. Uh, at Fort Valley State, we, we've been diligently planning for uh, in-person return uh, to campus for quite some, some time now. Uh, since the spring semester, we have been working to put into place all the necessary protocols uh, to ensure safe return uh, and to mitigate the, the spread of the virus. Uh, uh, some of the most critical reopening strategies we've included uh, um, in our very comprehensive uh, reopening uh, uh, plan uh, is, is it was, was done by the, the, the eight work groups that uh, we, we have on campus and uh, uh, more than, I believe, 100 faculty and staff members uh, participated in this, this process. And uh, they have developed, I think, some, some of the best practices uh, we can expect, uh, informed by uh, uh, support from CDC and uh, public Department of Public Health and, of course, the University System of Georgia. Um, you know, quite frankly, we've had to sort of toss out the concept of normal <laughs> and um, prepare ourselves for what we are calling a new normal um, as an institution. Uh, as an institution, um, uh, our professors, many of them had never been in this, this online environment. While we do teach a, a number of courses, the majority of them had, had never taught online. And so this has been uh, really uh, quite challenging for, for all of us. Uh, uh, the biggest thing we had to do is really to increase our, our, our technology um, and, and get up to speed in, in, in many of those areas to make sure that uh, uh, we were delivering a quality education uh, to our students. Um, one of the greatest, our greatest challenges, quite frankly, um, 
along the way has been securing appropriate uh, PPE or personal protective equipment uh, to ensure a safe return. But thanks to uh, GEMA and the University System of Georgia, we've been able to get the necessary equipment to uh, prepare our campuses. I must also admit the CARES Act funding has also been very critical in helping us to build that technology capacity and to support our students who have struggled financially and and have lacked some of the very basic technology needs um, to operate in this new uh, environment. Uh, COVID-19 has uh, forever shifted, I think, the educational landscape for everyone. And, and we've had to reimagine uh, how we should invest, uh, prepare uh, our students in this 21st century education while simultaneously committing ourselves to placing safety first um, uh, as we uh, reopen um, the campus. And, and this for, for institutions like Fort Valley State has made it even more urgent um, for us because of the unique issues many of our students face when they leave their sort of protective environment uh, of our campuses, including issues of involving food and resource insecurity, as well as struggles even with uh, safety. Uh, our preparation for a safe return has particularly been challenging uh, as we think about the disproportionate health impact of COVID on uh, the African-American community, which is the largest percentage of my students. And we can't forget the, the, the social unrest that, that is, that's taking place in, in many of the communities where these students are coming from. Um, as one of the three public HBCUs in Georgia, I believe it's essential that we not lose sight of that and and, and, and that we think about what our students are going through, even from a mental health perspective, and making sure we can uh, help them navigate a path forward and to channel those, those energies in a, in a, a very effective and appropriate way. Um, this past weekend, we began the uh, staggered return uh, of our first-time freshman students to campus um, with upper division students started, uh, starting uh, midweek. And, uh, as you can imagine, students, uh, their families, employees are, are all excited, uh, but very anxious. Um, however, we've, we're asking everyone to uh, trust the plan uh, and to understand that it is a shared responsibility for us all and uh, if we want to ensure the safety and well-being of, of our campus. Um, at its core, um, FESU strategy has been defined by casting aside, I think, the perceived boundaries under which we had traditionally operated and giving ourselves, I think, the permission to, to be creative, dynamic, and innovative as we, uh, as we not only try to survive COVID, but to grow stronger because of what we've gone through. Um, we've, we've, for 125 years, uh, we've had uh, a number of, of challenges and, and we believe we will be able to navigate this one uh, as well, but uh, that's not to say it will, will be easy. Uh, we know there's no easy answers and making adjustments, we'll, we'll continue to make adjustments along the way. We're already doing so right now um, as we are learning where some of the inherent gaps are um, as our students are re-entering and our faculty re-entering the campus this week. Uh, but we're, we're determined to learn from, from, from all of this and uh, we're looking forward to hopefully a uh, productive and uh, very uh, safe uh, fall semester.
Paul, I appreciate that. You, you covered a lot of ground there. I want to ask you one follow-up question, though, because you talked about, um, you know, the needs of your students, and some of those are unique needs of your students. We've done a lot of research at the Georgia Chamber around those first-generation college students about degree, degree completion, and oftentimes we have a lot of people with a lot of hours, but they're not finishing up. They're, they're, they're close to the finish line, but they don't have the dollars to finish up. What are some of the programs that, you, that you've got on campus or that you've got with a system to help those kids finish their degrees, come back to campus so they can be more productive? Uh, thank you, Chris, and that's a, a very good question. Um, you know, we're, we're not only focused on access, uh, but, but also affordability. And, and um, uh, we are proud that we, we, we're one of the institutions with the lowest tuition um, in, in Georgia and really across the, the country. Um, but having said that, uh, more than 70% of our students are on uh, Pell Grant, uh, which, which suggests that we have some of the neediest students uh, that you can possibly have. So keeping costs down is great. The tuition, tuition uh, uh, remains, um, re remains low. I think the university system has put into place a number of initiatives like the No More Borrow Less that uh, really is helping our students to manage debt uh, we, we uh, after my investiture uh, a few years back, we, we put into place what we call a, a gap fund. And the gap fund is one that, you know, oftentimes we're losing students over $500, $300. And what we're doing is trying to make sure that uh, those students we're not losing, um, that we have funding available that will assist them. And so we, we establish an endowment uh, uh, and our alumni and friends have really stepped forward to help us uh, in this area, um, including when we put a call out to our alumni uh, about uh, funding needed, um, they stepped forward during COVID and uh, put together a uh, created emergency grant uh, that we used as well to help students. And finally, we have another program that's an emergency grant program that is really a, a good program and it's through a third party uh, uh, a supporter who, who uh, provides us with funding that will uh, help students with true emergencies, like your car just broke down. Um, uh, you, 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 um, you, you, you really couldn't pay rent. Um, and so you can't use it for tuition fees, you know, but uh, if there is a true emergency, we have some funding av available to help those students. So those are just a, a few of the things that we we have in place, we do have a, a, a new outreach coordinator in the financial aid office who's really working very closely with students trying to help them along the way as well to, you know, try to get to them before they drop out. Um, because again, um, sometimes a, a very fragile population and we, we have to uh, make sure we're paying attention at every stage of the process. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. I wanna switch gears and go down highway, uh, interstate 16 a little mm -hmm. way. Uh, Dr. Murrow, thank you uh, for being with us today and for all of those in Eagle Nation, we appreciate you. Uh, tell us a little bit about what life is like at Georgia Southern right now. Thank you, Chris. And, and if you don't know, Chris is a proud graduate of Georgia Southern and so part of Eagle Nation. Uh, uh, well, thank you for letting us be a part of this today and, and, and share with people how we're navigating through these uh, clearly challenging times. And my colleague, Paul, 
uh, is just such an outstanding president. And I was privileged to be part of uh, the group with Jerry Moorhead, with Paul and uh, two other presidents. As we began, as we shut down back in in March, uh, and if we go to a triptych, in essence, where at least for our institution, we transitioned 5,000 courses uh, from March to then deliver the final five weeks of our spring semester. Uh, fully online. Uh, we had a virtual commencement that we ended up uh, providing on March 8th and 9th with over 100,000 viewers nationally uh, and internationally that were able to see our graduation. So we found innovative ways to make it through this time. And, and I think the question for many of us as we began developing our initial return to campus plans, which took us through the summertime, and then uh, specifically as we continued to deliver through the summer online, then what would be our return to campus plans? And so the guidelines that we set forward within that in a structure really looked at three scenarios or contingencies. And with the goal that we believe in the value of face-to-face -face as much as we can make that happen within social distancing within a COVID-19 environment following all public health and safety guidelines. And so for us, that really looked at what would that face-to-face -face look like? What are the modifications within all of our operations? And so each of us then as an institution developed our plans. So if you can understand from a Georgia Southern perspective with three campuses over three counties, uh, 20,000 students in Statesboro, 5,300 in Savannah, about 500 in Hinesville, three campuses, very different, very different locations, very different needs for each of those campuses and the students we serve. That along with developing a plan that would set us up for success and be agile at the same time. So continuous assessment as new guidelines came through from CDC and DPH and that was critical for us. So what did that look like? Just to give you some concept of what that would look like uh, for us, it meant 7,600 signs now that are installed throughout all of our campuses that are giving best practices, egress, ingress information, elevator information, uh, hand washing. We have over a thousand uh, installed hand sanitizers. Uh, we printed over 1,500 uh, uh, 3D printing face shields and we distributed 70,000 face coverings to our faculty, staff, and students. We have a, a kit for each of our students moving into our residence halls that have a digital thermometer, set of face masks, uh, hand sanitizer, and then the guidelines of what we expect them to follow while we're here. So with all that, then we are faced, uh, then what do we do with our course modifications? Uh, we had almost 6,000 courses set and scheduled for the fall semester. So as you looked at those and at the point of when we started, about 16% were online, about 84% were face-to-face -face in the original schedule. So bringing together faculty and over 130 groups together, we, uh, we worked through 130, excuse me, faculty, staff and, uh, and, and leaders through how would we reorganize this curriculum in a way that would honor as best we could, which is our principal values and goals, which is student success. And we believe the most face-to-face -face we can provide in that as possible within those guidelines. So as we established that and put that together, we we're looking for every mannerism we could, hybrid, flipped classroom delivery, uh, asynchronous, synchronous delivery, Zoom video where students could be in one area and another, and then with a, a TA helping them through that class if they had questions, uh, if the professor was in one room while the other part of the class was in another, half the class meets one day, the other uh, half meets the other day, every manner in which we could innovate and be flexible around that. 
And at the end of the day, we were able to develop then a curriculum delivery model for this fall that really honored our principles and values. And, and I think if anyone asks, and I get this question a lot, how, how do you lead through this? Uh, how, do you, how do you stay true to your core mission? And I think the, the secret there, and, and Paul alluded to it, is what are our values? What do we stand for? What do we believe uh, is, is the mission? Uh, why do we exist? Why are we funded in the state of Georgia? What is the impact to our com communities? So student success has to be at the center of every decision, the quality uh, and the ability for us to deliver multiple facets of instruction in multiple modes, and that we have those same level of expectancy of quality and student learning outcomes. Then the health and safety lens has to be through every single decision we make. That's principle to everything we're doing in the guidance with CDC, Georgia Department of Public Health. And for that, and as CEO of a, of, a, of a large organization, I have to think about the fiscal sustainability of our operations and how we're gonna maneuver through this. And we all as state agencies all know, and the governor's done a terrific job in getting us through this, but we had a 10% budget cut like the other state uh, agencies. And for us, that really meant looking and adapting what was principle and what was focus. Again, it is always gonna be our mission and our values that guide us through this. And for us, always students, health and safety, and the sustainability and impact of our organizations to the regions we serve. So we've had great help and guidance from the university system. Uh, I can't thank the regents enough, the support there that we've, we've gotten through this, uh, particularly Georgia Department of Public Health, and what we've set up from everything from testing protocols to tracing uh, to notification and partnership, and then all the processes within that. Uh, we're as ready as we can be. And we start classes uh, August 17th, Monday. We'll start moving in on the 10th. And uh, we're expecting a record freshman class. And we're excited about the future. It is going to be, as Paul said, it won't be normal. But we're doing everything we can to ensure the safety of our students, faculty, and staff in our communities and the core mission of what we're called to do, which is transform uh, people through education and to develop talent. And that's what we're trying to do here at Georgia Southern. Oh, thank you. T two quick questions. I want to follow up to something you just said. You, you said that back in the fall or back in the spring, you were 16% online versus 84% face-to-face. When the kids come back to campus and start back, what does that mix look like? Thank you for that. And, and I can give you the, you know, we've just finished all this. The students know what their classes are. We really tried to honor it. Now we landed uh, basically, just to give you real numbers, we have about 923 fully online courses out of uh, that mix before uh, with the remainder being face-to-face. -face. We're landing now at about uh, 13 to 1400 of those ended up being fully online because we had no other geographical solution. The class was just too big. We had to deliver that. But really, we moved to about 20 to 21 percent online, and then about 79 percent ended up being a modified face-to-face. -face. Uh, there was at least three or 400 courses within that mix of almost 6,000 that we were able to continue to deliver face-to-face because -face social distancing standards could be established through that, uh, all requiring face coverings throughout that while social distancing can't be maintained. So, uh, we, we've, I feel like we've done an incredible job and thanks to our faculty and their innovation and helping us through this and ready to go. Thank you. That, that's, that's, an, that's an interesting stat to, to track and look at kind of across the systems out there. One last question for you before I, I switch over. Um, 
you've got a very diverse population. You've got kids coming from a variety of backgrounds. And I know one of the things that all of our universities have been focused on is how do you help those, those kids when they first come to campus the first time find that success, right? What, what are all the programs that we're going to do to help them stay in school, find the resources, be successful? Now you've got COVID layered on top of that. So some of these kids, they don't have the support system back home because we've got so many people out of work. You've got a different situation where a lot of them are not going to be able to go to you know work and go to school. So any kinds of new programs or innovations you've had to develop for those freshmen that are coming in first time on campus? Sure. Uh, we have what's called SOAR orientation, SOAR like an eagle, of course, right? And through all that, we have put uh, adaptation in there, particularly around COVID-19, about those expectations. We produced videos. We have training modules uh, that we have sent out that have been viewed by our students. The system has helped with that also. The Georgia Film uh, Academy has, I think, about 80,000 different views on, 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 on the videos that they've put out already. And so for us, communication is key. Uh, the expectation of what the environment's going to be, uh, that it matches at least to the experience that they're looking for, but they understand the individual responsibility as they're coming in, that they must bear uh, as they come and join us uh, on our campuses. So for us, uh, the, part of the onboarding process as they move in, uh, we'll be talking to them, talking in groups with social distancing and making sure that they understand those responsibilities as we move in and transition to that first uh, week of classes. Got it. Thank you. By the way, I was, I was in SOAR. I did SOAR, so I'm glad it's still running after 100 years ago. So uh, great. Well, let's, let's go up 16 and up 75, if we will, Dr. Witten, to you uh, and Kennesaw State, one of the fastest growing universities in the state of Georgia. You've got kids coming in from all over the world. What's your world looking like right now? Well, you know, the, the fun of being a W is you always go last. And so I'm going to I'm gonna pivot a little bit um, because, frankly, we could have, uh, for much of what Kyle said, just put in Kennesaw State and it would have been the same in terms of planning activity. So, so, so let me switch directions and then make, and make the point. So um, let, me, let me just take a couple of minutes and if, if I can talk shamelessly about my university and then I'll, I'll tie it to, to moving forward in COVID. So, you know, all of you from um, Georgia know that um, there's a pretty amazing story tied to this university, right? It, it you know, launched in the mid-60s as a junior college, and you fast forward today, we have almost 38,000 students. Uh, this past fall, a year ago, we had a 30% increase in our freshman class, which is unprecedented. Uh, this summer, even during COVID, we had a 14% increase over the summer before in terms of uh, students enrolled in taking classes. Um, we were just named in the last year and a half an R2 institution, and so, that means that we're one of the 6% of all universities in the country designated uh, as a research institution. We saw a 40% increase this year alone in grants that were submitted from our institution. Uh, we have um, other metrics um, you know, that we look at. For example, uh, US News and World Report puts out a lot of rankings and presidents decide which ones of those they like and which ones that, that they don't like. But, but one interesting one is called the yield rate. And the yield rate refers to the number of people that apply and are accepted to your university, how many then choose to actually come. And Kennesaw State actually has the highest yield rate in, in the state of Georgia. Um, our yield rate is in the top 15 nationally and it's at 61%. And to put that in context, um, the average university sees about a 30 to 32% yield rate. So for every 100 students that apply to get in Kennesaw State, about 61 actually choose, choose to come here. And I would argue that's in large part because they're getting the programs that they want um, and know that they'll be successful from that. 
We have the second largest um, engineering program in the state. Um, we have a number of very pragmatic degrees. For example, we launched a BS in cybersecurity uh, just back in 2017. Started with 48 students. It's got 500 students in it, uh, you know, two or three years later. Uh, nationally recognized business programs. Our accounting program has 100% placement, you know, for, for example. Uh, we had the first PhD program in data analytics in the country, and it's um, very, very selective to get into now. But we're also seeing external folks in the state recognize the need to invest in things to make sure we are producing the students to do those things that the state needs. And so this past year, for example, we announced uh, that in a partnership and through a $9.7 million gift from Wellstar, we would be doubling the number of nursing students at Kennesaw State. So we'll be going to over a, a thousand. And of course, uh, given, given the current health situation uh, in the country, that's, that's looking more important than ever. We had a couple um, who uh, gave us the largest gift we've ever had in our history, $10 million for our honors program. And our honors uh, program numbers have gone up 150% just in the last three, three years alone. And so I tell you all that to say that, um, that, that it's an exciting university as are so many universities in the USG. But tied to that is that our goals are, for all of us, are to make sure that we provide an amazing educational opportunity to our students and that they're able to earn college or graduate degrees. And that we have a real focus also in an investment in the state and taking care of the needs of the, of the state. And even though um, we could go on for hours about all the specific things we're doing at our university to make sure that that happens in a COVID time, those goals haven't changed. And in the conversations uh, that I've had with our, we have, we have a very strong chancellor at our university system, very strong leadership. Obviously, uh, the Board of Regents are, uh, frankly, incredibly supportive of us. I've had a conversation with a number of them, particularly in COVID. And with the addition of keeping everyone safe as the top priority, they've also been very clear to me that the mission still stays the same, to provide an amazing education, make sure our students are making progress to, the, to those college degrees, and then of course, uh, the benefit and the impact on the, on the state that we have as well. Um, so we've done all the same things, amazing, very robust presidential task force, lots of things in play. Uh, you visit our website if you want um, some good reading for a few hours, you'll see all the details about how you achieve these goals uh, in, a, in a world of COVID. Um, but I would also stress that, that we recognize, and this is, this is probably really the key for higher education as well, the lesson we've learned from COVID and that we will be applying specifically a week from Monday when we start, and that is the need to be flexible. And we will be adapting as necessary in these coming weeks and months to make sure that we accomplish those goals for our students and for the state as a whole. So um, that's pretty impressive, by the way, all, all where Kennesaw was, where it is now, uh, and we're excited for your leadership up there. One of the things that, uh, that Kyle was talking about was the shift to classes online. And we had Dr. Um, um, Denley, the, the chief academic officer for USG on a few weeks ago, talking about remote learning versus virtual and how you have your teachers who are traditionally standing in front of a room delivering that topic, how they have to change their entire you know, process. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like. I mean, how have you helped your teachers learn to go to a digital world and how do you provide the same level of, of impact to your students when there's a screen and there's you know, miles between you. Mm -hmm. um, well, I'll be honest, at Kennesaw State, um, we, we already have a very significant amount of online learning going on. So, so, so as you heard those phrases in, in the March, uh, in March, you know, remote learning referred to, you do whatever you can to get education to people 
that are far away versus online learning, which means you very intentionally designed a course and a curriculum to be delivered through a format to be delivered to people that, that are at a distance from you. Um, at KSU, we've actually um, had very significant online education for a while. We have 40 degrees that you can earn from our university purely online already. We have 25 plus fully online certificates. So there's very robust infrastructure at our university. But on top of that, um, we did, um, we basically put it on steroids this summer. I know we had 150 different sessions for faculty and those were formal sessions, not the ones in the colleges to, to get them up to speed, not only on the current technologies that were in place, but all the new technologies that we've purchased, frankly, over the summer to make sure we're, we're in really good shape in, in the fall. Um, and, and then a lot of it's just kind of fun gadgets. So um, in a lot of our classes, for example, that will need to be hybrid because we can't bring everybody in and keep them six feet apart at the same time. So we'll be rotating them in. Sometimes they'll be in person, sometimes they'll be at home. Everybody's getting an iPad. And then this cool thing called a swivel. And if you haven't seen a swivel yet, um, go play with one. And then the iPad is literally, as the, as the professor is giving his or her lecture, it's moving around with them and it's delivering them you know, to the student at a distance you know, in, in real time as well. Um, but but I, would, I would close your question by saying um, that's not exactly an accurate uh, description in 2020 because 2020 is more about, we think about totally face-to-face -face education and those of us that are, that are my generation think about that versus purely online education. That's not how a 20-year-old thinks of it anymore. It's really a continuum. And even if they were doing things primarily face-to-face, -face, unbeknownst to many of us, they had a whole lot of stuff already going on online in terms of support and discussion groups, et cetera. So, so the students are pretty well-versed in it. And, and the faculty as a whole are probably a little more ready to pivot than a lot of them, a lot of us give them credit for. I think it's interesting what we've heard from so many businesses, corporate, small business, this during this downtime, they've accelerated their investment in technology, which I'm hearing you're, you've done as well over the summer. I'm curious, I'd like to ask all three of you a couple quick questions before we go to our friends with Deloitte. Uh, the first one is, you know, we're, um, my 14 year old's getting ready to go to high school. We talked to the school board. They're looking at different metrics about how they deliver education when they shut it down. What happens if there's an outbreak? Paul, what metrics are you looking at to make a decision that, hey, we can't be in person anymore, we're having to pull back? And then I'd like to ask all of you that, that question. What are the metrics? What are the triggers? Right. Uh, thank you. Um, one of the things, we, we have a what we call a COVID-19 uh, emergency team that, that meets weekly. And uh, uh, we, we're constantly update, uh, being updated on what's taking place. We'll, but as we think about... Uh, whether we go from uh, the current uh, plan of contingency one to two to three, we will certainly be working very closely with the system office, monitoring the surges and the, you know, the activity within our, within our area, because as you know, no two counties are necessarily alike during this, uh, during this pandemic. And so we're monitoring very closely what, what, what is happening right in our surrounding areas. Uh, it's crucial for us to, to do everything we can to, as I told our, our faculty and staff today, we couldn't create the, uh, a bubble like the MBA, but, but uh, we might want to think about, uh, to the extent we can create a bubble, uh, create that on campus. And that, that's why we really uh, reduce the, uh, you know, the, the activity of, you know, on and off campus and uh, 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 not having visitors uh, from outside in the residence halls and, and, and things like that. So 
We will again. We'll just be we'll be monitoring a, a number of factors, and and again working very closely uh, with the system office uh, uh, to determine uh, whether or not we move into uh, the the second the second phase or not. Al, what about you guys? Look, very much what Paul said. Uh, you know, we have a plan, and we're daily uh, assessing that plan as we move forward. Uh, my group, my task force, we we meet uh, twice a week. Uh, we go through every bit of our operations, uh, where we are, the assessment uh, according to the plan, where we've made adjust adjustments, uh, what we think may be coming down the pike, what it's going to look like. We look internal, external, all the variables, uh, map it by three counties, uh, and, and then uh, we know where we are. But clearly, you know, any decision we make uh, to, to toggle to any mode of delivery or change anything we're doing would be in direct consultation with the with the system, uh, you know, with with the Georgia Department of Public Health uh, taking all public health guidelines. So it's in tandem. Uh, but be assured that uh, I'm sure, like Paul and Pam, uh, we're in constant communication with our our, our municipalities, uh, with our uh, county government authorities, our health systems. Uh, we don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, we have impact on our communities, and together we're making informed uh, decisions and plotting that around, along the way uh, within assessment strategies with our plan as we move forward. President Whitten, I, I know you say the same, you know, probably the same protocols there, but I'm curious, let me ask you it a little different way. What happens if you do have an outbreak on campus? What is, what's the plan in place then? Do you send the kids home? Are you keeping them? Is there a bubble? What does it actually look like if something happens? Yeah, so, so, so just as Paul and Kyle said, um, you know, these are not decisions that are made in isolation. Uh, there are too many variables and there, there are too many areas of expertise that we all need to borrow from. And certainly uh, from, from the university system offices we talked about, but also those with expertise in, in public health, the, uh, you know, our Georgia Public Health Department and, and, and others. Um, and um, there's, there's, that's, a, that's an answer that's, that's a question that's answered in different ways for a very large university like ours, right? I mean, so we have, um, uh, you know, about 5,500, 6,000 uh, beds in our residence halls that are full. Uh, and so we have plans in place uh, for those students that might test positive to isolate them. We've got special place to send them. We've got, and others, we've got uh, potential quarantine procedures in place. Um, certainly and the same for students that live off campus in terms of contacting them, them et cetera. But I, but I think what I, would, what I would add to that that's, that's important to note is that we have been very, very focused on addressing how we're gonna make sure the continuity of education continues. Because um, it's possible, I know this is gonna be a shocking thing to say to everybody, it's possible that some undergraduate students might do some things off campus where they don't social distance at times. Not at Kennesaw State, but it's possible that we'll see that at other schools. And there might be the need to even quarantine uh, students that, that, aren't, that aren't feeling sick. But, but what we're putting in place are robust measures so they don't lose a step in the classes that they're in. So they can pivot if they need to. And as appropriate, uh, do pieces of it online or, or be able to keep up as necessary as well. And that's gotta be a big part of the planning that, that you do, is you've gotta, be, you've gotta recognize how fluid this is gonna be and do the best that you can to make sure we get to the goal line in December, which is people safely getting through the courses they need to make progress to degree. 
Well, if you can figure out how to keep those kids from, from going to parties and doing those things off, then I think you, there's a whole other career for you there. So we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Let's, uh, let's switch gears. I want to bring in Cole and Scott, uh, who work on these issues and help universities all over the world. Uh, guys, thank you for being with us. Thank you for what Deloitte's doing to help us. Cole's also, I uh, have to say, got a connection back to Georgia Southern. So we're just smothering the Eagle Nation here today. So, Cole, I'll, I'll kick it to you and let you uh, share with us what Deloitte is seeing and what you're advising. As I was mentioning earlier, I grew up in Statesboro. My father was a professor at Georgia Southern for many years. I'm a product of Marvin Pittman. If Kyle, if you know, you know about Marvin Pittman. I don't think the building's still there anymore, but uh, the Teachers College was where I got my early education. <laughs> um, I'm going to start out with just some, some very high-level observations actually about, uh, I think, some of the longer-term implications for this for higher education um, beyond uh, the next uh, three to six months. And then Scott, is, uh, who's much, much more directly involved in some of our uh, work with institutions around the country on their uh, re reopening and return to campus plans and strategies, um, We'll give some observations on, on some of the leading thinking uh, there, uh, if that's all right with you. So, you know, I, I see the, the current pivot to, to hybrid education and online that, that many of you have been talking about uh, over the last uh, 40 minutes or so um, as, as a durable adaptation that I think is greatly going to enhance the residential college uh, experience for a lot of institutions well past the, the current pandemic. Uh, as long as we really don't miss the opportunity. Um, you know, there's a lot of these trends to uh, online and, and uh, digital transformation have been, uh, have been swirling around us in higher education for years. I think the pandemic has is, is, is poured gasoline or an accelerant on that, you know, on, that, on those embers. Um, and we've got a real opportunity to think about hybrid as as core to the institution and not just something that we do uh, as, an, as, an, as an aside. And so some institutions who have a little bit of capacity to start thinking a bit longer term, we're beginning to work with them on how they need to rethink the academic enterprise in order for hybrid to become core to the, to the institution and not just something that we do, you know, maybe as a continuing studies effort or something else, but, but actually it, it is the modality that we're going to operate in. And, and that, you know, line between whether it's 50% high online, 50% residential, or 90-10, 10-90, you know, is going to depend on a lot of factors, but, but certainly something that I think is a potential lasting adaptation. The second thing I'll say is that those institutions that have invested in digital transformation and putting technology tools, things like predictive analytics and and modeling and chatbots and artificial intelligence and infusing that into the student experience have come through this a lot better than most others. Um, because it's not just about delivering instruction online. It's this 360 degree community of care that has to be built around the student experience that goes well beyond just uh, instruction. And technology really can play a role in delivering that 360 degree community of care when you can't be face-to-face. -face. And so I feel like a lot of institutions that have taken those steps uh, even before the pandemic was upon us, you know, have come out uh, a little better in this. And then uh, the last couple of things I'll say is that um, in this sector, and I'm certainly not talking about anybody here on the, on the Zoom, but in this sector, a lot of otherwise very, very smart people 
fail to see the potential of these of these tools in this this notion of hybrid and and how technology can be an enabler they're so tied to prevailing paradigms and find it difficult to imagine you know a transition to a new paradigm that they just don't act and that's what i was trying to get at earlier is that let's not waste this this opportunity to to really dig in and try to make some of these things stick uh, for the long term. Um, the final point I'll make, and then I'll turn it over to Scott, is that, and I think this is a, a bit more relevant in the Georgia context, uh, one of the things that we're seeing is that uh, state systems are using this opportunity as a way to really accelerate plans to operate more like a system, uh, as opposed to a collection of of, of institutions that sometimes have competing interests and overlapping programs and services um, and, and really use this opportunity to accelerate that, that coordination. Uh, we, we authored a paper a year or so ago called Futures, S in parentheses, of public higher education where we talked about what some of the models might look like if systems decided to really operate almost more like a large university with, with constituent campuses as, as opposed to just a collection of of institutions, and so I'm, I'm seeing some of that happen. Some of that is, frankly, you know, on the back of the financial crisis that many of them are facing, and just using the financial exigency as the as the rationale for why some of these things have to happen. But I've I've counseled many of them um, that there's huge positives to this too. That you can build and design a vision of the future that has the potential to serve many more learners, not just traditional students, but adults, you know, who have some college and no degree, or maybe no no college at all. Uh, if we adopt some of these models for um, operating more like a system and, and leveraging technological uh, tools. So with that, I'll, uh, I'll turn it over to Scott to talk a bit about what some of his work has been like with, with some of the reopening plans. Thank you, Colin. Thank you all for having us. Um, hard, to, hard to follow that sort of future-focused vision with more sort of tactical things, but um, just just listening to sort of the the three institutions that spoke about the reopening plans, I think that you know there, there's obviously a lot of consistency, um, but there are a lot of open questions that I think exist as well. And so I just wanted to share some of our thinking, what we're seeing from around the country, the way institutions are uh, are are envisioning reopening in the fall, and then frankly also closing down and recognizing that you know, at the end of the day, the pandemic is really what's going to control everyone and everything. And so we need to be able to be a, a responsive to that. So um, apologies if this becomes a little bit staccato, but uh, there were a bunch of things that I thought it would be important to, to touch on. So the first is testing. Um, and what we're seeing is, uh, you know, institutions that are developing robust testing strategies sort of have a three-tiered approach. Um, with some element of pre-return testing, um, basically saying anyone who, uh, you know, wants to come to campus, student, faculty, staff, whomever, uh, needs to go through a, a testing protocol. Um, most institutions are sort of paying for this, um, much like I think the MBA did um, before anyone joined the bubble. They had to sort of mail away for a test. Uh, a lot of institutions are, not. I shouldn't say a lot, Several institutions are following that similar model um, so that before students show up on campus, they get a negative. And then once students are on campus, um, you know, some element of surveillance testing, not as a mechanism to identify all of the students who have the disease, but rather to try to understand prevalence on campus as a mechanism to help leadership decide what to do. Do we continue? Do we shift gears? 
Um, and then obviously having the capability to do, uh, you know, symptomatic, specifically diagnostic testing for students who may, uh, you know, present with, uh, with symptoms that look like they could be COVID. Um, similarly, I think um, thinking on the, the sort of symptom side, um, institutions are also implementing uh, like COVID pass apps or some, some, some systems, some phone-based application that every day a student actually inputs all of the information, they take their temperature, um, you know, and a lot of institutions are actually sending out care packages to students with thermometers. Um, but taking the temperature of, you know, the student takes their temperature, they list which symptoms, if any, they have, and if they are sort of expected, meaning it's kind of normal course, or whether it's unexpected. And then ultimately, the app will give them a, a red, a yellow, or a green. Red saying, do not come to campus, go to a clinic. Yellow saying, do not come to campus, but, you know, see how you feel in 24 hours. And then green saying, you're, you're effectively good to come to campus. Um, you know, also thinking about student expectations. Obviously, mask wearing is a significant issue. Um, and, you know, a lot of institutions are struggling with the question of what do we do in open spaces? Do we, do we tell students, faculty, staff, that anytime you are on our campus, no matter whether it's inside, outside, where you are, there's an expectation that you're going to be wearing a mask. Um, and then obviously there are a lot of questions, you know, what, ha what about in the bathroom? What about in dining halls? Like there are circumstances. So trying to figure out and being very thoughtful about policies around mask wearing, around social distancing, um, recognizing the questions and the pushback that, that you're going to, that, that you may get. Um, much like I think uh, a couple of the institutions we're talking about, I think that the question of how to deliver courses in this is becoming a very significant issue. Um, one institution that I'm working with basically said any lecture that is greater than 50 students is automatically going online for the fall semester. And any lecture that's below 50 students, it's up to faculty whether they want to try to deliver in person or exclusively online. But even if they deliver in person, um, the expectation is that no more than a quarter of the class will be in the classroom at any one point in time. So basically, they're creating rotational schedules for their students uh, unless, unless, this, unless the, the group is 10, 10 students or fewer. Um, they're creating sort of rotational program for the students. So one out of every three or one out of every four sessions, they're going to actually be, uh, be in person and otherwise students will be able to take, take programs, uh, take courses online. Um, you, uh, there was a question about sort of triggers and data that are being monitoring. So I made a list of the things that we're seeing. Um, prevalence of disease in the community relative to the locality. Um, the spread type whether there seems to be a relation between cases that you're finding, uh, whether there's an ability to support quarantine and isolation. Also looking at absenteeism in class. Are you finding that students are, you know, not showing up to class more often than not, presumably because they have, you know, uh, they've gotten a yellow or red on the COVID pass? Or alternatively, are you having trouble with essential workers as well? Um, obviously, ability to maintain cleaning supplies, testing material, PPE. Um, any ventilators and occupancy of ICUs at the local hospital, understanding sort of the, the local health system's capability to support, uh, you know, your students, your staff, your faculty, if an outbreak occurs. Um, 
the uh, and, and then the other thing that, that I think a lot of institutions are really struggling with is the question of compliance and then ultimately enforcement. So if we're seeing uh, students, staff, faculty not following the guidelines, not following mask wearing, not following social distancing protocols, et cetera, you know, is that a signal to us that we need to ultimately think about closing back down because we're now concerned that we don't have the capability to, um, you know, to, 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 to stem the spread. What institutions are also thinking about is what do we do? Um, so one institution that I know of is actually creating automatic triggers and not automatic triggers. So basically this school has four or five specific circumstances, very quantitatively focused, that will automatically send the school into a targeted pause of all on-campus activities. So basically if one of these metrics is tripped, then all on-campus courses stop, everything goes virtual for a period of three days or five days, depending on the trigger, and then the president and the leadership team, and then presumably the board of trustees would reevaluate and say, okay, you know, are we ready to bring students back? Are we gonna minimize the amount of on-campus but allow some stuff on campus? Or are we gonna move exclusively, exclusively virtually? So again, I know, I know that was a lot for, for five or six minutes, but those are the, those are the things that we're, um, you know, that we're seeing uh, percolating right now across, across higher ed, especially uh, with the clients with whom we're working. Uh, that was great. We appreciate it. One question for you and Cole both, or uh, however you want to answer it. So what we're seeing right now across the country is about 22% of businesses probably will never reopen uh, because of, of, of the recession, the pandemic. A recent study that I read said that about 30% of U.S. colleges were actually at risk of not surviving. That's a huge number, 30%. That said, some of those will just closed and we've already seen a couple make that announcement. Many will be absorbed or merged. Do you think those numbers have va are valid or what do you what do you think? I, I do um, and, and interestingly so there's a, uh, a, a higher ed prognosticator who unfortunately passed away several months ago Clayton Christensen who um, had talked uh, long a while ago probably eight to ten years ago about how a third of institutions wouldn't survive the decade. Um, that clearly did not come to fruition. Um, it's very hard for me to put a number on it or a percentage, but I would expect there to be a one to two order of magnitude growth in the number of institutions that are forced to close or merge um, or get absorbed as a result of this. I, I don't see how it's, how it's not going to happen because um, you're, you're going to see a lot of institutions that have significant enrollment declines as a result of COVID, and then you layer that on top of the um, sort of the, the economic realities of where higher ed was sitting, even in a pre-COVID world. And, and it just creates, unfortunately, a, a kind of perfect storm. I'll follow up on that with a positive um, comment, <laughs> which, which is that th I think that's true if there's no change. Thank uh, you. And, and to what I was saying earlier, uh, there's an opportunity here for institutions to think about the future in a different way, address a different cohort, uh, than they're than they than they traditionally served, you know, exclusively. That could, frankly, lead to uh, growth, uh, not just survival. And, and so I think it's it is a, a frightening story if there is no transformation, if there's no change. But I do think there is a real opportunity here for that story, uh, Chris, not to play out in the way that some people are predicting. I and, and I I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think the impetus for change is, is impelling institutions to 
focus on that. I think the fact that there were, you know, a, a slew of studies that, that came out in April and May that talked about the, the quality or lack thereof, more frankly, uh, in relation to the on-camp, or sorry, the virtual experience for students who had been going on campus, um, did, I, I do think has created a groundswell of support for, for this idea of, uh, of focusing on an improvement to the, the way institutions interact with individuals in a, in a virtual or online way. Well, listen, th thank all of you. I'm getting a hundred questions coming in um, about the mo maybe the most important issue, which is college football. I'm not going to ask you three that instead or five that. Instead, what I'm going to tell you is on August 20th, at 10 o'clock, we've got another round table. I'll have the athletic directors from Georgia Southern, UGA, Georgia Tech, and Mercer to all talk about their plan. So there's your tease to join us again in a couple of weeks for that discussion. I do want to remind all of our guests that are with us today uh, that our congressional luncheon ticket, virtual tickets are available online at gachamber.com for next Tuesday. I hope you'll be with us. Uh, and I want to thank all of you, our, our presidents and our friends from Deloitte, uh, the chairman of the Board of Regents and others that are with us today. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the economic impact that you make in your communities and know that we're here as a business community to help you any day. So thank you all for being with us. 